If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans, the 16th and final chapter. Uh, as you are turning there, if you're not already there, let me provide a, a quick personal update. Uh, as, as many of you know that for the last a uh, little over three years now, I have been steadily working towards finishing my doctorate uh, and am proudly uh, happy to tell you this morning that I have finished it this week and will submit it for approval uh, this by Thursday. And so at some point in the coming in the next two months, I will go and defend it. And Lord willing, by his grace, will graduate in May. And so I'm thankful to, to all of you who have helped and prayed for and encouraged and supported me and my family through this. It has been a, a long road, but I am thankful to be at the end of it. Uh, so speaking of long roads that we are almost at the end of, let's come to Romans uh, chapter 16. This morning we are going to be looking at uh, verses 17 through 23 uh, next Sunday. Uh, because of, of this week, we had planned to uh, I had planned to have as much time to finish my project as possible. And so I had asked uh, an RTS student from Charlotte to come and fill the pulpit for us next week. Uh, his name is Zachary Leach. Many of you may may remember him. He is the, the British guy who came and, and preached for us over the summer. And so we're excited to welcome him back next week. Paige and I will be out of town uh, celebrating the completion of this project. Uh, and, and so we will finish Romans the following week. So we'll have a, a gap next week and, and then we'll come back and finish it up next week, the week after. So this morning, Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes these words. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for your grace. For its sufficiency and never ending supply. God, as we come to your word this morning, help us to come with humble hearts, with hungry hearts, with desperate hearts, hearts that need you and that need your grace. So, Father, teach us from your word. Help us to see this as true. Help us to live in light of it. To bring glory and honor and praise to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with a, a little thought experiment this morning, shall we? What do you think that you'll be doing an hour from now? What about three hours from now? Or three days from now? 
three months from now? Three years? Can, can, you, can you think out that far and plan out where you'll be and what you'll be doing three years from now? What will be different about your life then than it is now? What will be the same? What do you hope will be different? What do you hope will be the same? I think a better question maybe to to ask you this morning is how often do you think about the road ahead of you, the future? How often do you wonder about what it'll be like? How often do you worry and fear? How often do you plan and prepare? One, one study found looking at every social media post out there and all the various forms of social media that there is, this study found that over 15% of social media posts had something to do with the future. And I realize that 15% isn't a big number. However, when you consider all of the various social media forms that are out there and all the posts on those various social media platforms, and then consider that 15% of that had something to do with the future, I think shows us that there's quite a bit out there that people are talking about in terms of the future. A different study actually showed that when our minds wander or we daydream, 43% of the time, almost half of the time that we daydream, we daydream about the future. We wonder about the future. And I find that very interesting, and I think to some degree there's wisdom and, and, and brilliance. It's smart for us to think ahead, to try and anticipate what's around the bend is, is really, it's by all accounts, a wise practice. But there's always this danger that comes with thinking about the future. Worry. Fear. This inability to stop what's coming can lead us to despair. Anyone who spends too much time thinking about what the future holds can become captive, can become enslaved even to fear over the future. And as Christians, not only is it wise for us to consider the future, but I think as Christians, there's a a liberty, a freedom that comes when we consider the future as Christians. Ralph Abernathy said it far better than I ever could. He said, I do not know what the future holds. But I know who holds the future. There's a peace that comes when we consider the future. There's the promises of God. We trust that no matter what may come around that corner, whether it be an hour from now or three years from now, no matter what comes, we know that God will not change because of it. That he remains the same yesterday, today and forever. And for that, he is to be praised. This morning in our second to last passage of Romans, here we have Paul looking ahead, looking into the future for this Roman church, warning them of a potential danger and assuring them of a certain guaranteed victory. And when we consider the future, I think we should do it like Paul does. I think we should be aware of potential dangers, but we should always keep in mind what God has promised to be certain. And so for our roadmap this morning, to give you a glimpse into our future, or at least the next 40 minutes of our future, here's our plan. And, and what I want to do is I want to look at Paul's warning for the potential dangers that lurk around the corner for this church. And what dangers might lurk around the corner for us. 
And then I, I want to show us the, the Paul, how prom, Paul promises certain victory. And finally, very briefly at the end, I, I want to point you to an anchor. To an anchor that can root us as we think about our past, our present, and our future. So that we are not lost in it. So, let's begin. Uh, warning, the, the first. The warning of a potential problem. Paul begins this, this section with this appeal, a plead in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them, he says. Keeping in mind here that Paul has not yet been to Rome. And there are no reports of any dispute or false teaching within the church in Rome. This may seem like a strange way to approach the end of a letter. But when you consider that almost every other New Testament letter that Paul wrote, almost every other church that Paul had been to, at some point struggled with and fought against, and was at risk of being destroyed by false teaching. Paul's warning here seems to make a little bit more sense. Because ultimately what we have Paul here at the end of this letter of, of rich theology and of rich gospel teaching, what Paul is eventually saying here at the end is, say, is, I've seen this everywhere that I've been. I've seen these false teachers. And if you haven't yet, my brothers and sisters in Rome, it's a matter of time. And so be ready. Be on the lookout. Avoid them. Within this appeal, Paul gives us really two imperatives, two commands. And if I'm honest, they they can seem to contradict one another. Right. In the first, we on the one hand, we see Paul saying that there are people who come and all they want to do is create divisions. These people are going to come and and try to tear the church apart, to disunify, to divide the church. And Paul says, watch out for them and stay together, stay unified. But then the second part of this command is of these people that are trying to tear the church apart. You dis, you divide from them. And so he is saying, be united and divide all at the same time. And so there seems to be a contradiction. Now, I, I think that there's in this verses and in these these even just one or two verses, we understand that there's an importance of unity for the church. But we can't discount the fact that that underneath so many of of Paul's chapters in this particular letter, not to mention the other letters he writes, but so much of Paul's teaching lies this undercurrent of unity, this theme, this thread. The church needs to be unified. We need to be together in the gospel because this unity shows the power and the work of the gospel of God to bring together people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue into one people, his people, his bride. And so we understand Paul's warning that these false teachers are coming. They're going to come and create divisions. They're going to build obstacles. They're going to attack the unity of the church. You need to watch out for them. You need to be ready. You need to stay alert and protect your unity. But the thing about unity, especially unity in the church, is that unity only counts when it's centered in truth. Unity just for the sake of unity is nothing. 
But when we are united around truth, that means everything. So to, to, give you, to help you understand what I mean, let me give you a scenario. Imagine, if you will, a first grade classroom full of students who have just finished their very first math test ever. And they're excited. It's finally done. The teacher decides that to, to help them process the, the right and wrong answers, they're going to grade their tests together as a class. And so they get to they, they work their way through it. They get to the second question and the teacher realizes that everyone has missed the second question. But what's special and unique about this is that they have all guessed answered it wrong, but answered it the exact same way. The question is two plus two equals and everyone in the class has written down the number five. And so every student is, is discussing this and the teacher sees an opportunity here for them to learn together. And so she allows the class to work together to figure out the right answer together before she gives it to them. And so they come together. She sits down and lets them discuss it amongst themselves. And after a few moments of discussion, the teacher comes and says, OK, tell me what you've learned. What do you now think the right answer is? And the students say, well, here's the thing, Mrs. Johnson. We've reviewed all of our answers and we've discussed why we each came to our answer. And we've concluded that we're going to stick with our original answer. All of us have it. We all put down the number five and therefore all 15 of us can't possibly be wrong. So we're going to unite around this. It's 15 of us against one of you. And so two plus two, Mrs. Johnson, we rightly declare equals five. It's cute, right? We, we'd laugh and we miss if, if we were in Mrs. Johnson's shoes in that moment, we'd say, well, that's sweet, but you're all failing now. <laughs> a group of first graders uniting together to declare that they are right and it's their teacher who has to be wrong. Unity has to count for something. But not really. Unity only matters if you're united around something true. Otherwise, you're just united in error. You see, it's, it's cute when we imagine a first grade class doing this, but what about an entire church? Or what about an entire denomination? What if instead of a math problem, the question is about sexual morality? Or marriage? Whether homosexuality is good or evil? Or whether transgenderism is biblically based? What if the question becomes about the person of Christ? And about what he actually did on the cross. About whether he was physically raised from the dead or not. Is this not exactly what we see happening all around us? On the question of marriage, people come together and churches come together and say, we've, we've looked and we've, we've decided that this many people can't all be wrong about marriage and about homosexuality. And so we've looked at the majority of same-sex relationships and we've determined the kindness and the love that exists in these relationships. And therefore, we've decided as a united church that the word of God must be wrong about this. And since so many people in churches are united in agreement on this one issue, then we must then conclude that the Bible is wrong on this. It's less cute then, isn't it? And still just as wrong. Churches can be united around all kinds of things. But if you are united in, wrong, in, in error, you are wrong. 
And being united doesn't mean that you're right. Unity only counts if it's unity centered on truth. So, enough of my tangent. Let's get back to Romans. Paul's big command here. For the sake of unity, divide. That's, that's the, the big command in, in verses 17 and 18. For, for the sake of unity, divide. There are going to be people who try to tear the church apart, who try to create divisions, who try to build obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So if we, like the Romans, can expect false teachers, and I think we can, I think we should, should at least be alert, we need to understand what these false teachers sound like. Because they can be very, very deceptive. Now, I won't spend too much time here, but look at verse 18. This is where Paul describes them. He says, for such persons, these false teachers do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We see three truths about these false teachers. First, they do not serve Christ. They claim it. And they will call themselves your brother or sister. They will say that they are a Christian just as much as you are, but they are not. And Paul is very clear about this. They do not serve Christ. And they teach a doctrine that is contrary to Scripture. Second thing that Paul says about them is that they serve their own appetites. Or literally, the Greek says, they serve their bellies. They do what will satisfy them, what will scratch their itch, what will bring glory to their name. This is self-centered idolatry. And they disguise it. They cover it up. They hide it under the camouflage of religious devotion. And the third thing that Paul says about them is that they are very convincing. Smooth talk and flattery is what Paul says they use. Again, that word flattery in Greek is more literally translated as blessing. False teachers often promise blessing, happiness, satisfaction. They mask over the lies with the promises of God's blessing if you follow what they tell you. And it sounds really, really good. Really, really important. Very, very true. They are convincing and they target, these false teachers target the naive, the young in faith, who are easy prey because they don't know any better. And this sounds pretty good. Let me, I can give you an example from church history of this. You know, for months we've been saying the Nicene Creed together. But did you know that this creed, like most creeds, came as a result of a heresy in the church? It came as a result of the fruit of a labor as the church tried to figure out what they believed. And you had two sides. You had a, a man named Athanasius who was fighting diligently for the truth of Scripture. And you had another man, Arius, who debated, who, who argued that Jesus, the Son of God, was a created being. That he was not equal with God, that he was created after everything else. And Arius was convincing. Arius was not alone in this. The reason the church had to come together and write this creed is because Arius had a following. And it was creating a problem. How could a man like this convince so many people that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not completely God? 
One church historian describes Arius this way, and I think it's it captures what Paul says here. He here talking about Arius here was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, singing sea shanties in dockside pubs and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful. Arius was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that heresy does not bludgeon us into belief. It seduces us. This is what heresy does. False teachers don't come in and beat you over the head with their false teaching and say, believe it or else. They come in and seduce and allure and tempt and entice. And we take the bait. So we need to understand that false teachers come into churches and they create obstacles and divisions that are contrary to the gospel. But they are not always easy to see. They hide under the guise of religious devotion, smooth talk and flattery. They sound and look godly. But we must watch out for them and, as Paul says, avoid them when we find them. But let me offer a quick word of caution on this command, avoid. I think it is very tempting when we talk about false teachers and we talk about passages like this where Paul tells, says very clearly how we must approach them. I think there's a temptation here to go overboard with it. We don't need witch hunters looking for false teachers in the church. Because eventually, anytime someone says something that we disagree with or something that is just slightly off-center... We will cry out false teacher and burn them at the stake, but not literally. And if we do this in the church, the church will be destroyed. Because sometimes we say things in error because we don't know anything else. Or sometimes we say things without thinking about what it could mean. And we don't need witch hunters in the church looking for false teachers. Not every disagreement is the result of false teaching. And we must be able to distinguish between areas that, is, that every Christian must believe and other areas where Christians can have different opinions and it not be the result of false teaching. Also, we must understand that when Paul says avoid them, he does not mean stop loving them. Avoidance should never lead to a hardness of heart. But as Jesus told his disciples, we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute, who persecute us. So do not harden your hearts and do not give what is holy to unbelievers. Look out for false teachers, avoid them, but do not go overboard and love them. So that's the warning of the potential problem. Now, quickly, the promise of certain victory. Paul, Paul transitions here in verse 19, and it might seem a little bit odd and he says, for your obedience is, is known to all so that I rejoice over you. And I think if we if we break this up and break up this verse, we can make sense of it a little bit better. I think first we understand that there's a reputation of obedience in the Roman church. The Romans were quickly becoming world renowned for their obedience. And Paul was thankful for it. He, he rejoiced. He praised God for their obedience. And I don't have time to walk down this rabbit trail all the way, but. Honestly, this this rejoicing that Paul does here, it, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder about the reasons that we rejoice over the reputations of churches. 
You hear it so often. Their kids ministry is really something or their their music is, is so good or or the preaching really means a lot to me. And we find all of these different reasons to rejoice over a particular church over what a church is known for. But when's the last time you heard someone say like Paul, I love that church because they are so obedient. I love that church because they make every effort just to make sure that they are obeying God's word. What a blessing that is. Now, Paul rejoiced over their obedience. And and but the reality is, is the reason that he's rejoicing over it is. Also uh, a danger because their world-renowned obedience was likely to put a target on their back. And it's why he's here warning them of false teachers. But he also warns them not only of false teachers from the outside, but he warns them of what an internal fall could bring. What would happen if this world-renowned obedient church fell into sin? If they just started living in open sin? And the reputation began to spread over who they were and what they had become. And we see it today. The higher a church or a pastor climbs and rises into prominence, when that church or that pastor falls into sin, that fall is disastrous. And the church, Paul says in Romans, is rising to some really great heights. But Paul says, you better be careful. Because if you are known for your obedience now, if and when you fall, it will be bad. And it's going to hurt. And so what's Paul's advice to a church? How does he encourage them to to protect themselves from falling? Well, you heard Paige teach the children in this. Be wise in what is good. Be innocent in what is evil. I don't often like modern translations of scripture, but but there are verses like this one that I think the, the modern translation nailed it. Be experts in good, not even beginners in evil. How can a church avoid disgrace? How can a Christian guard himself or herself from sin? It is to be an expert in what is good and to not even be a beginner in what is evil. Don't believe the lie, Christian, that you need some sort of taste of sin so that you know what it is and how to avoid it. Don't walk close up to the cliff's edge just so you can say, I know how far down it goes. Just stay back back from it. Stay away from it. John Piper told his, his church in preaching of this passage, he said, there is enough sin in our hearts for Christ to deal with. We don't have to burden him with more. Be experts in good, not even beginners in evil. Which brings us to verse 20, this promise of victory. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a, a lot here. And man, I, I'm, I'm going to move quickly. So follow along. Hang on tight. First, the God of peace. Many of you may be familiar. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Jewish word shalom, which means peace. It's used as a greeting. Peace be with you. But shalom, as we've talked about in other contexts, shalom is is a much deeper word. And it doesn't just mean peace. It it means a wholeness, a, a completeness that comes when everything is as it was always meant to be. That's what shalom means. 
And so when God is referred to here in, in this verse as the God of peace, there is a, a connotation here that Paul in, intends us to read this verse in light of the Garden of Eden, in light of Genesis 3. He's talking about crushing the head of, the, of Satan under the feet of the church. Our minds should read this and go straight back to Genesis 3. Specifically verse 15. Where God promised that the offspring of the woman would come. And he would crush the head of that serpent. And that serpent would lash out and would strike and bruise the heel of that man. But that serpent's head would be crushed under his foot. God is the God of peace. He is the God of shalom. And he is at work making this world as it was always meant to be. Shalom is coming. Because the serpent's head is about to be crushed once and for all. Just like God promised. I think this this language of of the serpent's head being crushed in the future is, is difficult. Because hasn't Christ already done this? Didn't Christ already crush the head of the serpent on the cross? Then why are we still talking and waiting as if he still hasn't been defeated? And I think we have to hold this already not yet mindset that we read so much of the New Testament with. Yes, when Jesus died on the cross, the serpent, Satan, he bit his heel. And Jesus died as a result. But as God promised in Genesis 3, when Jesus rose from the dead, his heel came down decisively on the head of that serpent, crushing it. And we are now living in this in-between time where the serpent is writhing in pain, clinging to his last moments of life. But he is not yet dead. He still prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. But the promise given to us in this passage and throughout scripture is his defeat is imminent. The battle is already won, even if it's not over yet. I think it's an interesting note here that Romans being what it is, being this enormous treatise on theology, on teaching and unpacking all of these various components of the gospel that Paul is doing for 16 chapters. And here we are in the last few verses of this book. And this is the first and only time that Satan is mentioned. And I, I think it's what's, what even makes this stand out even more is that there's only one thing that Paul wants the Romans to understand about Satan. In the words of Martin Luther in his famous hymn, For lo, his doom is sure. That's it. That's that's what Paul wants the church to know when he's writing about the gospel and all the things that come with it. The one thing you need to know about Satan is he's a dead man walking. That's it. And we get so caught up or I, I hear it so much. Christians and believers talking and engaging with this battle against Satan and how we're constantly at war and we're constantly fighting and resisting and and how often Satan is out to get us. And I'm not discounting any of these things. But if you spend more talking, more time talking about the battles that you wage against Satan and his minions than celebrating in the fact that he is a dead man walking. You've missed it. Luther was right. 
His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Don't get lost in focusing on him. Don't get lost in focusing on a defeated creature. Because Christ has defeated him. And then the last word of this that I think brings some difficulty is that word soon. Because soon is a very powerful word. If, if, if a husband set, tells his wife that he's going to take out the trash soon, that comes with certain connotations and time understandings. And often those understandings are very different. Now I have to imagine that when you, if, if we were to sit in the Roman church when they first read this letter and saw that word soon, it would bring great comfort to them. I wonder if any of you read that word and feel a little disappointed. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote soon. I don't think he and I have the same idea of what that word soon means. And it's hard sometimes to hang on to this hope that victory is coming soon, isn't it? I mean, it is, it, it is hard to hold on to the hope that we say every week that Christ is going to return and he's going to return soon. Because it's been so long. And so then the question becomes, how long, O oh Lord? When will soon become now? And I think when we see difficulties like this and the timings of difficulties, I think immediately our hearts and our minds should go to Second Peter chapter 3. Because we are not alone in those questions and wonderings and fears and struggles and disappointments at this word soon. And Peter actually wrote to the church, he said in 2 Peter 3, scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. Because what else do scoffers come with? But they follow their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have from the very beginning of creation. Peter recognized that there would be people who would come and who would scoff at Christians who rested in the promise of Christ's return. They look around the world going on as it always has and say, you say soon. When's it coming, Paul? Things look about the same as they always have to me. And so Peter then continues. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christian, soon still means soon. Victory is coming soon. And of that, I promise you in the name of Christ. But keep in mind what soon means. And, on, and who defines soon. Now we spent a lot of time this morning looking towards the future. And, and when you do that, there are always uncertainties. Always possibilities. There are always some things that you can know for sure. And some things that you just can't know until it comes. And any time you have this sort of rocking back and forth between what you know and what you don't know, what you think you know and what you can't possibly know. Every time you get this rocking back and forth, it is easy to feel sort of unsettled. 
How do I know this? And how can I not know that? And how, how can I rest in this when I don't even know what this is going to look like? But as Christians, we are not to live unsettled. We're not to live rocking back and forth. We are anchored. We are held firm. And there are three gifts that God gives us to anchor us when we feel unsettled looking ahead. Three. First, you and I are anchored by the grace of God. That's what Paul, Paul ends this, this section in verse 20. He says, I, I want you to, uh, the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We are anchored. By the grace of Christ. Every day that passes, you are given his grace. A grace that is sufficient for every sin, for every weakness, for every failure. A grace that never runs out. A grace that never grows tired. A grace that never grows dull. That will forever be amazing. This grace anchors you. Because no matter what comes. No matter what tomorrow holds, no matter what next week holds, no matter what ten years from now holds. For you, your children, your family, any of it. The words that God spoke to Paul still hold true to you. My grace is sufficient for you. That grace anchors you. The second anchor, we are anchored by one another. We are anchored by one another. In Christ, you are brought into a community, into a people. And so should you see a brother or a sister flailing about, being tossed around by worries and fears over the future. It is your job as their brother, as their sister, to grab hold of them and tie them down. Again, we see the names here of, of Paul, of, of the brothers and sisters who are with Paul in his journeys. They are by his side in mission and in suffering and all of it. And Paul is anchored by his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so are we. Third and finally, we are anchored by the word of God. We are anchored by the word of God. I think verse 22 is an interesting one because it, it sounds, you could read it and say, well, did Paul really write this letter? Because here we have this guy, Tertius, who says he wrote this letter. But Paul had a, what we understand and need to understand from this is that Paul had a scribe. He had a secretary. What's called an, an amanuensis. And his name was Tertius. And most likely because of the, the persecutions and the injuries and the sufferings that Paul had, had experienced over the years, he was unable to see very well. We know that he had problems with his eyes. He was likely unable to, to write all that clearly. And so he asked Tertius to write for him. But we should understand that this letter is, even though it was written by the hand of Tertius, it was spoken by the mouth of Paul. And so Paul dictated this letter as Tertius wrote it all down. And here in verse 22, Paul says to Tertius, hey, man, write, write something of your own here. Speak to them. Let them know that, that you're here, too. And so he does. But all this reminds me of, of how we have the word of God today. Because it's very similar. It's not exact, but it's similar. We know that Paul spoke and Tertius wrote. And here we have the letter of Romans. But there's a third party at work in this process that we would be foolish to discount. And it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit didn't just work in the book of Romans, but he also worked in every book of the Bible. Speaking to someone, to a human author, who heard these words and wrote them down. 
And so the spirit who spoke to Paul, who spoke to Tertius, who wrote it down, that same spirit has now preserved this book for the last two millennia and longer for us to read, to study, to know. And so, Christian, you can trust the word of God. This book is inspired by God and therefore it is infallible and it is without error and it is sufficient for you. Be anchored by it. When you feel tossed around, when you feel uncertain about the future, rest in the grace of Christ. Cling to your brothers and sisters and hold on tightly to the word of God. And again, we'll end with the quote by Abernathy again. I don't know what the future holds for us, for me, for you. I just don't know. But I do know who holds that future. And he is worthy of our trust. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word and for all that you have given and blessed us with. Anchor us, Father. In times of uncertainty, we rest in knowing that there is grace, that we have a people, and that we have your word to hold us fast. And so, Father, forgive us for when we fear, forgive us for when we worry, protect us from false teaching. And protect us from sin. Give us grace to be experts in good and innocent to evil. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.